Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. All right, today we've got the story of Corporal Herschel Williams. Herschel Williams was a United States Marine that was serving in the Pacific Theater of World War II, specifically with the 1st Battalion, 21st Marines, part of the 3rd Marine Division. Now, Williams and his unit would take part in, among others, the Battle of Iwo Jima, and that's what we're going to talk about today. The Battle of Iwo Jima took a little over a month, starting in February and ending in March 1945, and this is very late in the Second World War. So in August of 1945, we would drop the atomic bombs on Japanese cities. So by the end of the Battle of Iwo Jima in March, we're, we're you know inside of six months from that date. Now, the people on the ground didn't know that. And the reason that we had to take Iwo Jima or that it was in the sites is because it offered something of significance. That thing of significance was that it was a large enough island to support an airfield. And we could base fighter planes there that could escort American or allied bombers as they continued to bomb the Japanese mainland. So the reason that was important was twofold. We wanted to continue the bombing of Japanese resources, bases, cities. Remember, World War II, we're we're kind of bombing everything. But the other is to support what is expected and everybody sees on the horizon for a long time. I mean, up until the last minute, the expectation that there's going to be an invasion of the Japanese main islands. And what we've learned at this point in the war is that you have to have at least reliable air power, if not air superiority, to hope for a successful landing and invasion of enemy territory. So... Bombers are bigger, larger fuel tanks, and they can fly greater distances than fighter planes. But they're vulnerable to enemy fighter planes, especially as they get over Japanese territory. So think of the fighters, you know, the smaller range, faster, quicker, um, incredibly deadly to these bombers. The bombers are going to be slower, uh, but much greater range. So we want to get an island where we can position these fighter planes that's within range so they can escort these bombers over the Japanese cities and hopefully fend off the attacks from the Japanese fighters en route. That's why Iwo Iwo Jima is on the list. Remember, in the Pacific War, we're island hopping, and we're kind of choosing which islands are important based off of certain criteria. When we get to Iwo Jima, the defenders there are going to position things a little differently than the United States has seen on other islands. There's been a few strategies employed in the Pacific. Um, In some cases, they're going to line up defenses on the beach and try to hit uh, the soldiers right when they land. I I want to say Guam was one of the examples where there was heavy fighting right on the beach. Then there's other examples where that we're going to look at more here in Iwo Jima, where you'd call it more of a defense in depth. So rather than put a line of defenders on the beach and trying to repel the Americans when they hit the shore... On Iwo Jima, the Japanese are going to scatter, and there's going to be a ton of small fighting positions. You know, instead of a, you think of uh, the Atlantic Wall in France and Norm, well, all across Europe, with that uh, that Hitler set up, and you would have these incredible complexes with massive fire. They'd have multiple machine gun nests and minefields and 
couple bunkers and a and an ammo resupply point, all to support this big naval gun that would. Fire. That's not what they're trying to do on Iwo Jima. On Iwo Jima, they might have one bunker with one machine gun that the Americans have to get through before they get to the next one, because one machine gun can, if nothing else, hold up the Americans. And that's going to be the point of the defense on Iwo Jima. Something that's interesting is going into the battle. This is figure figure out the right way to say this, because it's different. It's so easy now and so hard at the time, but victory was assured, right? So, there was not a way the Japanese were going to win the battle on Iwo Jima. They couldn't resupply it. They were cut off. The air power, the naval power was all heavily in favor of the Americans. It was going to just be a matter of time. Now, the Americans want the island now, and the Japanese are essentially saying, we're going to make you pay. And a big part of the Japanese strategy on Iwo Jima is how much can we make the Americans pay with the goal of if we inflict enough casualties, can we make them second guess landing on the Japanese main islands? So victory for each party looks a lot different on Iwo Jima, but these bunkers are going to come into play because again, the goal isn't to keep the Americans off the island entirely. It's to make the Americans suffer for landing on that island. It's going to be much easier done with scattered defenses around the island. Another major piece of the Iwo Jima defense are going to be the tunnels. And these tunnels, they're going to have 11 miles of underground tunnels built by the time the Americans land. That's not how, That wasn't the end state. So the defenses are not ready. In a perfect world, well, I don't know when anybody would ever say, okay, our defenses are set, bring it on. There's always something that can be done. But they were still in the process of building, and it's far from complete when the Americans land. But 11 miles of tunnel is a lot of tunnel. Those tunnels are generally impervious to naval gunfire and the barrages and the bombs that are being dropped on the Japanese defenders. It's really protecting a lot of them. But one major aspect of those tunnels is it allows the Japanese to reoccupy a bunker after it's been cleared. So if you think of a fighting position, think of just a foxhole that you dig in the ground. And if if an enemy is... if it, if you're moving past that foxhole and you kill the enemy in the foxhole, you can keep moving knowing that nothing's going to happen. Nobody else is going to pop up in that foxhole. You can see the whole thing. On Iwo Jima, these bunkers could be resupplied and resourced from underground. So you could kill as many Japanese fighters as you wanted in that bunker. And next thing you know, there's somebody else in there. You could poke your head in and look in the front and say, I can see there's no more enemy here. And then the next day, there's more in there with more ammunition. And now they're behind your lines. So clearing these bunkers and pillboxes and fighting positions was, was incredibly challenging, incredibly deadly. Again, remember, the Japanese goal on Iwo Jima is going to be inflict as many casualties as possible. And they end up doing, with that as their goal, they were successful. It was an incredibly bloody battle for both sides. So how do you deal with these bunkers, especially when there's so many of them on the island? We've talked about in the past using explosive charges. Because it's so hard to get a well-aimed shot into this tiny opening of a bunker that's often camouflaged. And there's not a big sign saying, here's where the enemy is standing inside. So often we would use explosive charges that would either be placed up right against the front or maybe even dropped inside if somebody could get close enough. Another method used heavily on Iwo Jima was the flamethrower. 
Now, the flamethrower looks like a jetpack. It looks like something out of the future. And that jetpack looking thing that a soldier walks around with, first off, incredibly dangerous for him. It's it's a bomb on their back that they're walking around with. And remember, there is death flying through the air in all directions on Iwo Jima. A flamethrower would, uh, the man holding a flamethrower would have his backpack on and this, this, I don't know the right way to describe it, like two to three foot hose looking contraption that he would spray the flame. So in the backpack, you'd have uh, compressed gas and a liquid that would be mixed in a certain way and pushed out a hose. And right at the tip, there would be a little spark and it would shoot a flame uh, or shoot a stream of flaming liquid. I mean, the best comparison I have that's going to, I think, work really well here is think about your garden hose and turning it all the way to where it's that that heavy stream. It's that. It's just spewing flaming liquid. It's nasty. But it's doing the trick to get down into these bunkers that the Americans are really having a hard time shooting their rifles, machine guns, or and even artillery to knock out. The flamethrower, again, think of it like your garden hose. You can get that down in those gaps. So the flamethrower in Iwo Jima would prove incredibly useful. Corporal Herschel Williams was manning a flamethrower when he landed on the beach on 21 February, 1945. And a few days later on the 23rd, when he would be assaulting forward along with some American tanks trying to clear a path for infantry, they get pinned down during this defense in depth. Remember it's, it's one after the other. So it's not even like making it through one line and then you're good. It's just constantly, you, you, you can't make it another 10 meters and bam, an enemy machine gun nest pops up and cuts down more of your guys. They get pinned down. His unit asks for Williams and four others to move forward and knock out these enemy bunkers. As they're moving forward, all four, except for Williams, are hit and wounded or killed. Williams, manning the flamethrower, makes his way all the way up to the enemy bunker, places the tip of the flamethrower right in the opening of the bunker, pulls the trigger, kills all inside. First bunker removed. Now, something to note with the flamethrower is that if you if you watch movies or, or play video games, it's going to be this infinite amount of, of firepower. You can run around all day with a flamethrower. The flamethrower only has seven seconds worth of burn time. So in other words, if you pull the trigger down, seven seconds later, you're out of your ammunition, if you will. Seven seconds. That's not a lot. The other thing is a flamethrower doesn't go, again, think of it like your hose in your garden. You can't shoot that thing 200 meters. The max range on a flamethrower is going to be between 40, 20, and 40 meters. To go back to the example of using your hose in your garden, you understand how if you're five meters from something, it's going to be a pretty pretty condensed pattern. You're going to be able to hit something pretty easily. But when you get out to the max range, now I wouldn't want to be standing 40 yards or 40 meters away from somebody firing a flamethrower, um, but it's going to be a much wider dispersion. It's not going to be very concentrated. You'll be kind of blanketing an area at 40 meters. So these flamethrower, the people manning the flamethrowers, they have to get close. It doesn't do any good to fire it from a super long distance away. And even if you're firing at 40, it might not be good enough. These guys often had to get right on top of the position they wanted to use. That said, Williams, throughout that day, throughout a, let's see, it was a four-hour firefight, five times, ran back to friendly lines, 
bullets flying everywhere. And remember, he's got something on his back that is essentially a bomb strapped to him. Runs back to refill his flamethrower or pick up another one that's already been filled and is standing by and run forward and assault another bunker. He does this over and over again, finding the openings. I think it's five times back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, finding the openings and spraying flames, flaming liquid into the bunker, killing all inside. Now, at some point, the Japanese see they've got to stop this. This guy is clearing a path for the Americans. So a group of Japanese soldiers stands up, fixes bayonets, and charges ahead. With his flamethrower, again, remember, seven seconds of burn time. So if people start charging at you, th- this isn't something that stops somebody dead in their tracks like a bullet. You're going to fire this flamethrower at the people and hope that you hit them and hope. I mean, he stops. I think it's at least four Japanese soldiers charging at him with bayonets at incredibly close range. He stops them with his flamethrower. He continues to be on the search for any openings. Remember, there aren't big signs over these that say bunker one here and bunker two here. They're hidden. They're intentionally hidden. He finds, sees some smoke coming out of a camouflaged air vent. Remember, there have to be air vents down into these areas that people have to be able to breathe. He finds the air vent, sticks the muzzle of the flamethrower into the air vent, pulls the trigger, killing all inside a bunker that was hidden, they couldn't identify, and likely would have killed countless American troops as they bypassed it. It is just a day of using this weapon that a lot of folks didn't survive using the flamethrower just because of two things. One, the equipment on their back could get hit and they could die quickly. They were an easy target for the Japanese. It was a awful weapon in a lot of ways. I mean, think of how you're dying. So the Japanese intentionally targeted these men. They wanted to kill them as soon as they could. And you have to get close to the position to use it. So it's not like an artilleryman that's a long ways back firing rounds. They're less vulnerable in that sense. Somebody using the flamethrower has to be right on top of the enemy position. They're going to be exposed a lot more often than not. But Corporal Herschel Williams would survive that day. And a neat little piece tied into this story, about a thousand yards away was something called Mount Suribachi. And on Mount Suribachi on 23 February 1945, some Marines raised a flag that was captured in a photo that is now used, that was then used to create the statue of the Marine Corps monument um, in Washington, D.C. So an incredibly famous photograph that um, Herschel Williams actually was able to see in the midst of this combat. Kind of a fun little or an interesting little tidbit in the, the story of Herschel Williams. But like I started to tip off there, he survives the day. And like many of the Marines that fought on Iwo Jima, that would end up being the last major battle that he saw. Of course, not knowing that at the time. He survives the war. He comes home, spends 17 years in uniform, retiring as a chief warrant officer four in 1969 and is alive today. And at the age of 96, he is the, there's a couple things here. He's one of two living Medal of Honor recipients from the Second World War. He is the only living Medal of Honor recipient from the Pacific Theater of Operations. And he is the only living Medal of Honor recipient from the United States Marine Corps in World War II. So how fortunate are we that we still have a great American hero like this that's uh, taking part in things around the country and, and giving speeches and, and uh, 
and serving as an example for, for an awful lot of folks. So it's a crazy story running around with flamethrowers on Iwo Jima, just knocking out bunker after bunker after bunker. Before his actions on 23 February, 1945, then Corporal Herschel Williams would be awarded the Medal of Honor. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.